America is built on equal standing before the law. Uh, that is one thing that separates us from uh, a lot of places where we would not want to live. Uh, equal standing before the law and equal execution of justice. Uh, our lawsuit, our law system is uh, integral to protecting the way we live and our rights and our freedoms, and lawsuits have an important part to play in that. Uh, a lot of sermons that I've heard on the topic, if you've, if you've looked ahead at all, if you've done any of the reading for the week, or if you know what I'm speaking about, it's lawsuits uh, between Christians. And a lot of the sermons that I've heard on this topic um, have uh, either bashed the legal system, uh, or talked about how lawsuits shouldn't exist, or they focus on frivolous lawsuits. Uh, none of those things are things that are addressed by our scripture today. And Paul definitely respected the rule of law and was thankful for it and used it to uh, the furtherance of his own ministry in the gospel. So um, that's what we're not talking about today. Uh, what we are talking about this morning is the problem that the Corinthian church was having, and then we're going to think about how does that apply to us? What do we need to do as a result? Um, so turn with me to 1 Corinthians 6, page 1776, in your pew Bible. Tell me the Holy Spirit isn't working <laughs> in this series. Now, before one of you turns there and you see that our, our passage is actually on page 1777, uh, I figured you open to the same page, so it counts. I just couldn't resist. 1776. All right, so um, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 1. If any of you has a dispute with another, and in this case, uh, context pretty quickly is going to show us that he's talking about a believer, a fellow believer. If one of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints. So Paul's very first question is, um, you have a dispute with a fellow believer, do you dare to take that before the civil authorities instead of before the church? And their answer was, yes, yes we do. Um, he's writing because this was the problem, or this was a problem in the church. By the way, it's a question, in the 11 verses that we're going to be looking at this morning, Paul is going to ask, depending on which translation you're reading, uh, nine or ten questions. And they all have this uh, structure of, don't you know that? So Paul has already talked to them about the things that he's talking about here. This is not brand new information. This is, these are things that they should have known already. Which led me to ask the question of myself, why did he have to tell them this in the first place? Or, or why did he have to write them this? Why weren't they dealing with problems between each other in the way Paul had laid out for them, in the way that Christ had laid out for them in Matthew 18. And the answer has been found in every sermon that's been preached in this sermon series, and it's that the Corinthian church was walking lockstep with their culture. I think that they took people to court within the community, um, not for any really malevolent reason, 
but because that's what everyone did. Paul, in another place in Galatians, says that we are to keep in step with the Spirit. The Corinthian church was keeping in step with their culture. And before we point our fingers at them 2,000 years ago, um, I would say that, again, all the messages that have been preached so far in this series have pointed out that the American church frequently walks in step with its culture. And we need to be very aware of that and be sure that we're not. So why were they doing it? Um, I think it's because it was normal. Because it's just what happened. If you didn't hear uh, Kip's message last week um, on sexual immorality, I would strongly encourage you to listen to it. Um, And he just... um, It's one of those where he stops preaching and starts meddling, if you know what I mean. Um, But it's an important one to listen to, and it really gets at what's happening here. We are so frequently uh, bombarded by the message of our culture, which is the message of the enemy of our God, and it is relentless, and we have to intentionally um, filter that, or else we're going to be just like the Corinthian people. He continues in in verse 2. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Paul here reminds them of their glorious future. We've we've sung about it already this morning, about the glorious future that we're going to have. We think about it pretty frequently. You may have already talked about it this morning in your ABF. We often focus on that without thinking about the responsibilities associated with that glorious future. Um, I don't know exactly where Paul was thinking, but it probably was Revelation 22 um, teaching. Obviously, Revelation wasn't written when Paul was writing this. Um, But this truth, no longer will there be any curse. This is when we are standing at the end of time, ready to step into the everlasting kingdom. Here's what it's going to be like. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city. In other words, God has placed his political and spiritual authority right there for everyone to see. That's what his throne represents, is his rule. And his servants, that's us and all the redeemed of all time, will serve him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and they will reign forever and ever. If you want to know what heaven's like, and you're worried that it's going to be harps on clouds, it's not. It's raining over a new heavens and a new earth with our God forever. You are an eternal ruler, and Paul's concern is that we are everlasting rulers who can't rule themselves. That's who the Corinthians were. And he says, if you're going to be doing that forever, can't you handle squabbles now? And sadly, their answer was, no. We have to go before judges. Verse 3, do you not know that we will judge the angels? Now, let me ask you, how many of you feel really comfortable with the idea this morning that you're going to judge an angel? Yeah, not many of us have uh, probably even thought about that recently. But when you do, angels are these... Uh, super powerful beings who have 
what look like magical powers in scripture, and we know they have ginormous wings and swords. Um, I've, I thought to myself, like, how in the world am I going to be equipped to judge angels? Whether they're demons or angelic beings, he's not clear. There's no other passage in Scripture that I know of that explains this any better than what Paul does right here. How are you going to be capable of that? And the answer came in a sermon a couple weeks ago that one of the works of the Holy Spirit, or perhaps the primary work that the Holy Spirit does in his body, in you and I, is to grant us wisdom so that we can hear the message of God, we can understand it, and we can see the relevance, the significance of it, and how we are supposed to live as a result. How are we going to judge angels? Uh, By the same power. And that wisdom we have access to right now, and Paul says because of that, can't you deal with small issues? You and I, believers within the church, ought to have the capacity to look at a very complex accusation and situation between one believer and another believer, filter that through Scripture, bring it before the Lord in prayer, talk about it with wise counselors, and come to a resolution. That's what ought to be happening. A lot of problems feel really big. They feel really complex. Sometimes I'll hear about something that's happening, uh, which I probably shouldn't be hearing about it, by the way. We'll come to that later. Um, And I'll think, wow, that is such a complex situation. How in the world can anyone figure out how to handle that? And the reason I think that way and you do when you you feel that way is because we haven't done what Scripture says. We haven't gone to Scripture and looked at what it actually says to do in this situation. And we haven't gathered wise people who know God well, who are walking with Him, to deal with it. That's what should be happening, but it wasn't what was happening within the church. In the church of Corinth, we saw incompetence at the spiritual level running amok. Verse 4, therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, appoint as judges even men of little account in the church. Uh, This is one translation of, uh, of how it's handled. In other words, he's saying, if you have problems, instead of going before the courts, even find the the person in the church that you think is least capable to handle it, and that's better than going before the authorities. Uh, some of the other translations say, um, do you take it before people who are of no account in the church? In other words, before a civil court. Uh, I'm not sure which one is right, but the point either way leads us to the second half uh, of that statement. Verse 5, I say this to your shame. Is it possible that there's no one among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? Earlier in the book, Paul had said to them that they ought to have been mature by now, but he still happened to talk to them as infants. And he's basically saying, you're a bunch of adults wearing footy pajamas, spiritually speaking, and coonskin hats. We needed, they needed to be able to move beyond that into wisdom, uh, but they were behaving incompetently. Verse 6 But instead, one brother goes to law against another, and this in front of unbelievers. That had led to failure within the church. 
Verse 7, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have already been completely defeated. He goes on in verse 8 to say that you yourselves, not only are you being wronged, but you're cheating and wronging your brothers. Paul says that their legal action demonstrates that they've already lost. Why do you go to court? It's to win, right? I mean, that's why you would do it. I don't think anyone goes to court to lose. And Paul says, you've already lost. But why is he saying that? It might be that Paul is concerned about the reputation of the church or of our God. And it's true that when we behave uh, in ways that Scripture says we shouldn't, we give God a bad reputation. Um, but I don't think that's his primary problem. I think his primary concern with them is that, and why he is saying that they've already been defeated, is because they are refusing to treat the situation the way Scripture, the way Jesus had said when he was there. In other words, and I'm getting, for those who might be listening instead of watching, I'm using air quotes here in a second, if we will not do church the way Jesus tells us to, then we have nothing to offer the world. And in that way, we're already defeated. If we are a body of people who are bound together just by our singing and our giving and not by the way we live before the world, then what do we have to offer them? And Paul is saying, if you are so in lockstep with the culture that this is the way you behave, even when I told you the right way to do it, then you're already defeated. So what should it look like? What does the process look like? What would Paul have told them? And uh, we're not going to turn to Matthew 18, but you can look at that later, and, and that is certainly forms the basis. It's what Jesus said to do um, for the way Paul handles it in different places. But here is the process, the steps to reconciliation. Notice that the header of this slide is not steps to being proven right. Because that's a lot of times what we're really looking for, isn't it? is validation or vindication that we were wronged. What Paul is concerned about is that we be reconciled. Step one, talk to the offender. Um, and, and not with your finger out, pointing at them and getting real close and poking them or grabbing their shirt and yelling at them. Um, speak to the offender in love and in hope. It should be our hope when someone has wronged us, it should be our hope that when we go to them and we talk to them and we say, here's what you've done to me, that they say, oh my word, no, I didn't do that to you, or I did that, but that was not what I meant to do. Here's what, the hope is that it stops right there, or the hope is that they say, you know what, you're right, I did that, and that was sin. I, I, we need to make this right. That's the goal. The goal is not for us to be proven right or feel better or affirmed, but rather that there be reconciliation and that the heart of the offender, whether sometimes we think that we've been the offended, and guess what? We're the offender. This process works no matter which side of it you're on. If you, have a, if you think that you've been offended or if you know that you have offended someone, the process works exactly the same. 
Um, so go and talk to the offender or the offendee in love and hope. If that doesn't work, if there's no resolution, no reconciliation, then you take one or two others with you. These are not people that you have carefully vetted to make sure that they're going to agree with you, who are going to side with you and gang up on the other person. These are two people who you believe are walking in step with the Spirit, who understand Scripture, who would be capable of addressing whatever the situation, sometimes there are special uh, situations, uh, depending on, on how the offense happened, but someone with knowledge of that so that you can go together and all uh, three or four have a discussion and hope that there is reconciliation. And it might be that those one or two people that you take with you end up saying, you know, actually, this, the person that you think is wronged is correct. And we should be hopeful that if we are wrong, we be corrected. We, I at least, man, I love to win. It doesn't matter whether it's a card game, video games, athletic stuff, I love to win. Uh, and in arguments and disputes, I love to win. That's why I'm so quick to pull out Google, because I'm like, I know I'm right. I'm going to prove it right now. Um, we shouldn't be that way. Uh, we should be ready to be found that we were wrong. If this doesn't work, uh, Jesus said to take him before the church. And what, what I don't want to have happen, and neither does anyone else, is that about this point in the sermon, uh, one of you stands up and says, yeah, I have a problem with Dave Rank. Here it is. That, that's not how Jesus meant for us to take it before the church. And so the process that we've put in place as well as so many other churches uh, that are like us, is that you go to the elders. And sometimes we call them pastors. Sometimes we call them overseers. Uh, it depends on which church you're in. In our church, we have those two uh, sorts of offices. And that's where you would go. You don't start there. It's not someone hurt my feelings and I run to Pastor Bruce. Talk to the person. If that doesn't work, you take one or two with. And then if that doesn't work, we have to take it before the church. Um, not because we're trying to prove ourselves right, but because we're hoping that the situation gets resolved and there can be a reconciliation. And so that's the process. Now, what if the, it doesn't even get reconciled with the elders? Well, Kip talked about it last week, excommunication. At some point, we have to, if a person is saying, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ and I'm a member of this church, and they actively reject uh, truth and they refuse to do what Scripture says, then the Bible says that we have to excommunicate them, we have to uh, treat them as an unbeliever and put them out. It's never, ever our hope that that's going to happen. Uh, the hope is that it's always going to be reconciled. And if, if that does happen, our hope is that through prayer um, and what the Holy Spirit does in that person's life while they're uh, away from us, that they be reconciled back in. That's the church's responsibility, but what's my responsibility? What's your responsibility? What's our step four? It's let ourselves be wronged. It isn't, well, the church couldn't get it done, God's way failed, so now I'm going to take matters into my own hands and go before the civil authorities. Look at, and I skipped it on purpose, look back at verse 7. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? And I can hear some of you silently screaming, No! You don't understand, Sam. My situation is different. It is so special that it means that I don't have to do what the Bible says. Love to talk with you. Um, really would. When we let ourselves be wronged, we entrust our future 
our well-being, our financial well-being, our reputation. Everything that's important to us, we entrust that to our Father. That's what step four does. He's the judge of the world, and he has said, don't take revenge. He has said, let me handle that. Let God handle your revenge. Let him be the one who brings justice to a situation. Furthermore, when we become, or when we let ourselves be wrong, we become more like our Savior, who made no legal defense when he was being put on a mock trial. He did not insist on his rights. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross and suffered the shame. He disregarded the shame that his adversaries heaped on him. And in that moment, he rescued us and defeated Satan. You never know what is going to happen when you obey God. I think I forget and we forget what power there is in obedience to see what God will do with it. In Jesus' case, he accomplished the task that was set before him and shortly thereafter received vindication from his father and elevation. You may be saying, that's all well and good, but I'm just going to let it go because I don't like confrontation. I don't like, there are very few people who like confrontation. There are some, I've noticed that those people often handle it wrong. Um, most of us don't like it, and so we just want to let it go. We don't really want to go deal with the situation, and we'll just suffer the wrong as long as it's not too big. James 5 says this, my brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. I would suggest to you that we must love each other enough to be brave enough to have that first conversation. It is not loving, if you see a sin pattern in someone's life and it hurts you, it damages you, it is not loving to say, I'm going to let it go. I'm not saying you go and demand your rights and all that. Did you hear everything else I just said? It's you go in love and you're hoping that there's an explanation. Our real hope in reconciliation is not that we are made whole, but that the situation is made whole, that, the, that both hearts are restored to Christ in the right way. That's the purpose. So often we are so focused on getting what is ours. And that's not what Paul's concerned about. And I would say it's not what God's concerned about. God will handle that. We see that over and over in Scripture. I know that you don't like confrontation. I know that it's such an awkward first conversation. And maybe sometimes it's awkward because we think maybe we're wrong. See earlier sermon. We should be hopeful that maybe we're wrong and that it's resolved in a, in a good way. The Corinthian church was experiencing a self-centered failure because they were so intent on their own rights that they walked in step with their culture and disregarded what Jesus had taught them to do. Paul wants to offer spiritual clarity. I can picture um, the person who's listening to the sermon 
in Corinth or the letter when it first comes in and they're one of those people. Like they know, oh man, I've, I did this or I'm contemplating doing this or I've done this five or six times already. Do you remember the passages that Kip spoke on last week? Sexual immorality. Uh, it's nice of him to take those um, rather than giving them to me. And it's on either side of my passage. Half of his sermon came from be- right before my passage. Half of it came from right after. And I can see the Corinthian people and maybe some of us sitting here today saying, yeah, okay, I've messed up in that way, but at least I'm not one of those guys that he talked about before and after me. At least I'm not one of the guys who is sleeping with his stepmom. At least I'm not one of the guys who's going to the temple prostitutes. Paul wants to give spiritual clarity. Verse 9, do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? And they'd been like, yeah, there's some really wicked people doing those sexually immoral things. And then he goes on, do not be deceived, verse 9, neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves. And at that point, we'd all be like, yeah, some pretty bad people. Nor the greedy. Have you ever been greedy? No? Good. Um, Nor drunkards, nor slanderers. Have you ever gossiped about someone? Have you ever spoken ill of anyone? Nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Why does Paul list this out like this? It's because he's trying to help them understand that sin is sin. That sin separates. It separates us from God. It separates us from each other. We may say, oh, this is kind of a small deal, this uh, lawsuits issue. It is not. Because the problem is not lawsuits. The problem is demanding my rights and walking in step with the culture that says, here's how you handle that, rather than doing it God's way. Paul wants to provide the spiritual clarity that while some sins may have a more apparent impact or may may have bigger apparent consequences and some may seem to incur God's wrath more quickly and devastatingly, that sin is sin. The glorious future that he referenced at the beginning of our passage that we are all looking forward to is only for the saved. And if we are going to claim to be those people, we must act like those people now. We do not get to live like the world lives now and claim our inheritance later. If we are going to stubbornly demand our personal rights to the point that we refuse to handle offenses in the way Scripture says, then we've been defeated. And Paul says, and that's what some of you were, verse 11. When you just read that, you think, well, what were the other people? Well, Paul was a murderer a religious terrorist. That's pretty bad. Probably should have made the list. Paul's point, I think, in the way he says it, is not to say that some of you weren't bad. I think it's an ironic way of stating we were all that. Don't you you understand? Like, we we were all on that list.
I'm going to channel Bruce. But God, right? That's his thing. He's not around. He's on vacation, so I feel like I can use it. That's what some of you were, but you were washed. There was conversion. Sins were washed away. The sins were confessed, and we were made into the image of Christ. He says, and you were sanctified. When we get saved, we are not immediately looking like Jesus in our actions, in our attitudes, in our thinking. It, it is a process. We do not spring from conversion looking like a seasoned saint. We look pretty much just like we did. And we pretty much struggle with the same stuff. And God starts to work, and he's faithful, and he says, hey, hey, Sam, here's a place that you're sending. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that is actually wrong. Okay. And then I feel pretty good about myself. And then I traipse along, and I'm feeling pretty. And then he's like, hey, Sam, here, you need to also notice that you're doing this. That's what sanctification is, and that's what God was doing for the Corinthians. It's what he's promised to do for us until we are made into the likeness of Christ at the resurrection. And it says, and, he, and we were justified. Our legal standing has changed. There was a death sentence against us because of our sin that Jesus took on the cross in our place. God has dealt with all that sin, so he says, stop living like that. And all of that was done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we, we run right over that name. I think the uh, ancient reader would have taken it more slowly and said, the Lord, what does Lord mean? Oh, right, that means master. That means I'm a slave. He's the one who has the right to tell me what to do. He's Jesus. He was the God-man. He was the one who loved us and became incarnate according to the Father's decree from before the foundations of the earth and took my suffering, and he's the Messiah, the one who was promised not just for God's chosen people, the Jews, but for all who would believe on his name. That's why God is doing everything, and it seems like an impossible task, but it's done in the power of the Spirit of our God. And the Holy Spirit is capable, desirous, to make us who we're supposed to be. You might be really relieved right now because we've gotten to the almost the end of the sermon. We're not there yet. Uh, almost the end of the sermon, and you're just like, hey, I've never, done a, I've never taken anyone to court. I'm good. Uh, and you're just going to run out the door, go to Culver's. Whenever I preach, we never get to Culver's before the rush. That's hard. Um, don't miss the deeper point. If you're feeling that way, then you're forgetting that the center of the passage, the thing where Paul landed was verse 7. The very fact that we have lawsuits means that we're already defeated. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? How do you react when someone wrongs you? My guess is you get coffee with someone, or you take someone else out to lunch, and you tell them all about it, how you've been wronged. And you start to build a coalition of people who agree with you and affirm you and make you feel good about the fact that you've been wronged. That is our natural tendency. And sometimes I see it to my great shock every time that someone will put it on Facebook. The most cowardly and least helpful 
place to put a grievance that we have with someone else. Social media. Um, that's what Paul's really going after. He's not really going after lawsuits. Lawsuits are just the illustration that we have handled it wrongly, that we are more concerned about the court of public opinion, that we want to be proven right, and that's all that we care about, and we're going to get it no matter what. Two questions I want you to think about. First is, do I have any conflicts where I'm not seeking reconciliation? I'm an undying optimist, and yet I believe that within Winona Lake and Warsaw, not just this church, but all of our churches who follow the Lord Jesus Christ, I would bet that we have lots and lots of cases of unresolved conflict, unreconciled conflict that is damaging our witness, damaging our effectiveness. And I wondered this week as I thought about this passage, because every pastor or preacher when they preach believes that the Holy Spirit is going to wash a new uh, wave, a new reformation every time they preach. That's what we think is going to happen. And I wondered, what would happen if that happened? What would it look like if it happened now? And I think it would look like chaos. Because I think that we've carried so much with us. We've refused to handle it the way Christ says. And I think it's like when we have a, a wound, a physical affliction that we don't deal with, and we won't go to the doctor because they're going to do something bad to us. So we just don't deal with it, and we put it off, and we put it off, and when we finally go, it's far worse Go to the doctor right away, folks. Um, I think maybe that's what we're seeing here. But you know what it would look like soon? Like peace and grace and power and effective testimony. New relationships, people coming into not only our church, but all the churches in town that love Jesus. Do you have any conflicts where you're not seeking reconciliation? And am I holding tighter to my rights than to love and peace? This process, by the way, is called church discipline. Church discipline is not when we kick the person out. Church discipline is the first time that we see a brother or a sister in the faith doing something that we believe is wrong, whether they're offending us or offending someone else. And I had a dear friend uh, come to me um, several months ago, and he's within our church, and he said, um, Sam, I have heard something about you, and I believe you're acting unethically. And he just, I could tell he was like so nervous and like geared up and wondered how I was going to respond, you know, because I'm a pretty explosive guy. And... Um, I was so glad, I, I was taken off guard because what he was saying wasn't true, but it let me say to him, oh, you know what, you've just heard part of it, and the part that you've heard isn't accurate. And I told him what the truth was. He said, okay, we talked. He went and investigated to make sure that what I had told him was true, and when he found out that it was, he's like, awesome. That's church discipline, folks. That's the way it's supposed to work. And if we refuse to do it the way Jesus taught us, then we are defeated already. Um, as you think about those, 
those two questions, I'm urging you to start taking the steps. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would give us courage to take the steps that we need to take to have the reconciliation that you want. You don't want us just to coexist. You want us to love one another, to fight for each other, to fight with each other on behalf of the truth, to encourage each other. Pray that you would not let us walk in step with our culture, that we would walk in step with your spirit, that we would honor Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.